close protection for me is one of the only gigs in the world where if you do your job right, you never use the vast majority of skills you train hard to develop. Welcome to The Circuit Magazine, the number one source of information on protection matters, the industry-leading magazine for all security professionals who want to stay ahead of the game. Security management and the concept of resilience. Today, we're excited to be speaking with Dr. Gabriel Schneider, CEO and founder of Risk2 Solution out of Australia. This builds on other conversations we've had on the resilience topic as well, most notably with Joe Saunders a few uh, months ago. John Moss and myself are delighted to be getting back to this topic. Um, what are you most looking forward to in this session today, John? First of all, yeah. I thought it sounded familiar, and that's right. We spoke about it with Joe, didn't we? And give me a bit of a, a reminder, and for the benefit of the listeners as well, Palam, mm. what what did we take away from Joe's conversation about resilience? No, that's a, that's a good question. So resilience, as I understand it, is the combining of security with uh, other elements like health and safety, compliance, and resilience and disaster recovery to get ahead of any problem that you might face. So it's a strategy for improving security management. Now, of course, today's uh, session, we're going to also look at Australia, but it can be translated and applied across the board. And, and of course, one of the goals of today's session will be to help the EP practitioners see themselves as a security manager, uh, which which I think is 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 quite a logical career path, isn't it? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Got it. And this also taps into something else that we discussed on the podcast just not long ago when we were talking about you know career pathways and ladders and and whether or not there are even ladders that exist for uh, within executive protection, but. Um, yeah, I mean, certainly, look, it, it's definitely something that as a protector, you're going to consider, you know, and you might even get pulled into the role without even knowing it. It might start to morph and might become a hybrid. You might find yourself, as I did, actually. So when I did a, a risk management course uh, several years ago, it was, I think I've talked about this before on the podcast, it was because I'd been given the title, I'd assumed the role without even knowing it. It wasn't on my contract or my job description, yet I started to become a risk manager. And I mean, to, to the extent, you know, that we, we're all risk managers within our job. If we're, you know, if we imagine that we're thinking sentient beings and we're not just, you know, stood in one position, uh, you know, doing a robotic mechanical function, then, yeah. So I, I think it's really important that, uh, we understand what our capacity is, what our knowledge, what about our limitations are, and whether that restricts us, first of all, in the role that we're performing. And if so, then to go and seek out the necessary training, but also, as you say, with a view to perhaps, you know, the next step on, on the ladder, that, you know, that career progression, and certainly, you know, we can open the door for ourselves and get a taste of it by by doing a course, by doing training so that we can see, you know, maybe 
at some point in the future is this is this a path we want to take absolutely and dr gav is a lifelong learner in fact <clears throat> i know he's just finished a cybersecurity uh, you know qualification uh, but he's a big advocate for for lifelong learning as as are all protectors if you you know you just have to look at cvs and uh, we do get uh, submissions to improve cvs but you, you look at them there's lots of great courses on there there's lots of uh, you know uh, experience and ambition so so there's absolutely a role for uh, you know discussing how ep can progress into this security manager role. Plus, of course, Dr. Gav is based out of uh, Queensland in Australia. And, and I think that will be very interesting to see how everything differs because more and more protectors might uh, you know, have work uh, down under, so to speak, or if you're in Australia, then you know it's exactly where you're supposed to be. Uh, so, uh, so, so I think that could be an interesting angle as well. Yeah, sure. Look, I mean, I've never been to Australia. I travel a lot with work. Any day I could get thrown, you know, I could get, I could receive that call that says, hey, you know, we're, we're going to, uh, to, to that part of the world. And it's always great to, first of all, to know people who are operating in that area, to be able to know that you can reach out and connect, that you've got friends there. And, and I certainly think, you know, that's how our listeners and our readers should think about these experts, contributors that we bring onto the show and into the magazine, you know, as an extension of your black book. As far as I know it, nobody who we've spoken to or interviewed so far has said, hey, listen, I don't want anybody contacting me, right? Everybody's very open. So first of all, you know, you, you've got that extension of your network in these different areas. And, and it's also great to find out a little bit more of what it's like to operate in those places. One, in case you're thrown there. And two, there's always something you can learn from the way that other people do it either differently or within the context and restrictions of whatever governs you know the environment that they're working in uh, that's 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 absolutely right isn't it and and i think that's what people should take away so uh, let's get into it with dr gabriel snyder and uh, look at the concept of security management especially for the ep community And now, let's meet one of the contributors to The Circuit magazine. Security management in Australia. Today, we are very pleased to be joined by the one and only Dr. Gabriel Schneider, CEO of Risk2 Solution. How are you doing? Very good, Venom. Thank you for having me. Thrilled to be here. It's lovely to finally have you on. I know we've had some of your colleagues and friends on before, and this is a great opportunity. I know there's lots going on in Australia at the moment, uh, but let's get into it with our three quick fire questions, which sort of set the tone uh, as we as we like to do. Um, security management and in Australia, what's the problem at the moment, as you see it, that perhaps needs to be solved? I think it's the same as in many other places, but realistically, there's this convergence of physical personnel information security and cyber risk that are all coming together and we've got experts in all of those but they're all generally focused on one or two domains so you know at the current time we had a large 
cyber breach of our second largest telco, Optus, which I think has shaken a lot of organizations. And it's a really good example that you can tick all the compliance boxes, but you know our opposition and the people who are carrying out these attacks only need to find one vulnerability to manifest something pretty significant. Yeah, absolutely, and that, yeah, that is that is very high profile uh, at the moment, of course. Um, and 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 so we're we're speaking with you, and obviously I'm you know very much aware of your background, but but where does your passion for this uh, topic come from? Um, so I originally started my career training and teaching martial arts. I still do train. I, in fact, this is my 40th year of training this year. Oh, I still have five. Um, but uh, I got into close protection as probably my very first real security gig. And, and that started back in South Africa. I'm originally South African. I've been in Australia about 15 years now. And uh, I spent a year traveling and training abroad, martial arts-wise, mainly in Israel. And did a lot of Krav Maga and Jiu-Jitsu and was a living student of a guy by the name of Dennis Hanover, who's considered the godfather of Israeli martial arts. Uh, when I came back to South Africa, I started studying and I, I ran my martial arts school and uh, I landed up having a contra deal with uh, Bob Nichols, who who set up a company called Nicholstein Associates, but back then it was called uh, 3P, I think, Personal Protection Professionals. And I did their defensive tactics training in exchange for doing all of the close protection training. So after about a year, I'd kind of run the cycle and wanted to get operational. So I started working part-time doing close protection gigs and doing the defensive tactics training. Uh, and when I finished my first round of studies, I finished off with a graduate diploma in marketing and management and a bachelor of business administration specializing in security. I then switched over and started working full-time as a close protector and studying part-time. And uh, in 2000, we, we started our first business called Dynamic Alternatives, which was originally a training business, but evolved into a close protection and specialized security business in Africa. And uh, probably uh, three, four years into that business, uh, you, you kind of hit a ceiling where as an operator who loves shooting, driving, choking, punching, hitting people, and I love being operational on the close protection side, uh, one of the best parts of being in Africa is those people who were serious about protection very rarely go to government agencies. They go to the private sector. So by then I'd have several, I'd had several deployments at prime ministerial and presidential protection level um, in probably our four different African countries and realized that uh, because I never formally served in the police or military, uh, I needed a different way to differentiate myself. So I focused back on my academics and was the first in Africa to get a master's degree in security risk, which was actually Bearing in mind, a lot of your listeners are probably executive protection or close protection uh, officers and practitioners was actually a study in how to professionalize the close protection industry in South Africa and looking at a comparison between South Africa, Australia, the UK and Israel. Uh, a few years later, I'm, I got a scholarship to do my PhD in Australia, moved here and began building what's become risk to solution group, which is a different story. But uh, that, that's my background. Um, my passion, realistically, I think. Most people who get into executive or close protection have, as David Grossman referred to it, a sheepdog mentality, and we like to protect. But I did have one incident uh, in 1998 or 99. I was a full contact champion in my style of jiu-jitsu in Israel. I was working full-time as a close protector. Got a phone call. It was my mother in South Africa. She was on the way to hospital. My stepfather had been shot in the head and attempted carjacking. Uh, grabbed my go bag, rushed to the scene. 
uh, almost landed up shooting two two guys who were looting the car, but it turned out that they were two cops who were looting the car. Oh. Um, he passed away not long after, and it was actually a turning point in my career where I fundamentally realized it actually doesn't matter how good I could get as an operator. You need to teach that knowledge to other people. And that's become a, a fundamental driver for me across all of my businesses. It's not just about, can I give you the best body? It's how much can we empower individuals to protect themselves, protect mm. their organizations, make themselves safer. So, you know, that was also a transition point for me from probably focusing on executive and close protection as a speciality to broadening my focus to uh, holistic security risk management. Uh, that, 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 that's a quite a, quite a stark, but, but important picture you've painted um, because, because of course, force multiplier um, will, will get more done. Uh, so, 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 so for that, uh, let's ask what would the completely uninitiated operator yeah, uh, like to know? What should they better understand about that transition? So I think a few things. Uh, I'm exceptionally grateful for, let's call it my first 10 years as a close protection specialist. The skills you learn from protocol etiquette, when to keep your mouth shut, uh, how to function in high level corporate environments, how to be exceptionally versatile, how to be an individual performer, because you know, despite the movies, most close protection executive protection gigs are usually one or two up. You don't normally get a full team. So you have to be able to work alone or in a team. The other piece that I think is incredible is, is we learn how to make decisions based on threat. And close protection for me is one of the only gigs in the world where if you do your job right, you never use the vast majority of skills you train hard to develop. It does create an excellent platform for what we've developed into the concept of resilience, proactive prevention and opportunity centrism around risk management. So... The challenge I think we often find is that when it comes to executive and close protection, uh, most people focus on the hard skills, you know, the firearms, the defensive tactics, the tactical medicine. While those are important skills, those are usually the skills that you don't need as you transition into, exec into more executive and security risk management based pieces. Your planning skills, your threat assessment skills, your principal profiling skills, the comm skills, those become an excellent segue. So I am biased because it is my background, but I think executive and close protection actually provides one of the best launching platforms into broader security risk management, but it does require this shift in mindset from you being the protector to creating structures that enable protection across a larger environment. Some people struggle with that, uh, but realistically, if you want to look to transition, it, it's about grabbing opportunities. It's about continuous study and it's about having a real open mind so that you can learn and evolve and you don't get fixated on, you know, this is how we do executive protection. Mm. And, and, and that, and that will hopefully resonate with a lot of the audience in that, you know, as they progress in their careers, they, they, they sort of think, well, do I start my own business? Do I go into training? Do I go into academia? And, and all of those require scaling. Uh, they're, they're all, all of those require management uh, skills. And, and of course, there are people in their latter years who are still operators, and that's fine. And that's, that's amazing. Um, uh, but, but, but yeah, and, and with the resilience topic, um, I think we should really unpack that. And I, I know we've had uh, your, your friend and colleague, Joe Saunders, uh, on before, but, but, but for the benefit of everyone else, um, 
Prisilience, what's what's that really involve and 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 what how can we learn more about it? Sure. So it's it's been an interesting journey. So I might just kind of uh backtrack a little bit on why I got to Prisilience and why it became important. Uh so when I got to Australia, I, I had a, sh- a very stock realization that the vast majority of skills and experience I had accumulated in about 15 countries. And as I said, ranging from, you know, high risk jobs where literally, you know, there were active attempts to kill people while we were on detail, all the way through to presidential protection gigs. Uh, In my head, all of those skills would be transferable. And when I got to Australia, I found the market was so different. And high level close protection or executive protection was done by law enforcement or military. The private sector could not work armed. Uh, in fact, it was shocking to me that in most states, the requirement to get a bodyguard license was, you know, an extra day or two of training on top of become on top of your security guard training, where we had just come back from a picture where for us to qualify a close protector was a 20 day program. And that was just the start, you know, that was just the entrance into the game. Uh, so it was really interesting. Uh, I went from the close protection side of it, where there's lots of opportunities to looking at corporate security. And I did pretty well in the early stages because of the international flavor we brought to the table, but realized that we needed to change what we did. So while I, while I love security, and it's always my first love, within the Australian context, there's no security, well, particularly back then, there are a few security requirements now, but for example, having trained and worked in Israel for quite a while, every hotel, entertainment venue, uh, and mass gathering has to have a security plan. It's a government requirement. It's ordered by the police. Come to Australia, none of that exists. There's no requirements for any of that, but every site must have a safety plan. And every site that has some sort of manual activity must have a safety management system. So we bought a, we bought a safety business, and then we were looking at going, could we integrate and merge safety and security? and found that the way organizations were structured was so siloed that these functions were generally handled by different people. And they were actually deemed to be totally different skill sets, which absolutely blew my mind. Going back to the close protection example, I often relate it this way. As a close protector, you don't kind of go, hey, I'm there to protect you if somebody's going to stab you, but I don't help you if you have a heart attack because I don't do medical. But, and, you know, by the way, there's a hazard that you might trip over. I'm not going to do that because I don't do safety. You know, we always tackle this as an integrated risk yeah. and holistic risk challenge. So to see these things broken up that way was quite frustrating. So we got into the world of risk management. And for me, it was a logical evolution of where if you follow a, a corporate hierarchy, at some point, all these functions meet somewhere. So generally that somewhere the only thing they had in common was that they were all risks that an organization was trying to manage. Uh, in about 2015, I've, I've always, probably since 2002 or three, I've always kept one foot in academia and one foot in business and operations. So I, we, our business actually got a contract with a university here and we partnered with them to redevelop and deliver a postgraduate program in the psychology of risk, which was a gift for me because it got to integrate everything I'd studied. I brought in behavioral scientists and sucks and we had a really good time figuring out what the psychology of risk was and we came up with this idea that really what we need to do is look at building risk intelligence in people and then that leads to the question so what is risk intelligence 
And we found it, it, it's interesting. You can get really smart people who have a great IQ, really people people who have great EQ, you know, the ability to get along with others and be emotionally intelligent. But you, you, you occasionally get these anomalies who are both smart and emotionally intelligent, but they can still make really stupid decisions. Yeah. So risk intelligence is the focus on how do we make good decisions? And it actually tied back to my PhD research, which was focusing on high consequence decision-making and training around use of force. And when I was researching that, there were all these models around how do we teach people to make the perfect decision in a split second where their life or somebody else's life might matter. And there were a ton of different models and frameworks for that, which, which we, we, we then cross map with psychology and with conventional risk management. And along the way, uh, started running our consulting practice around risk intelligence. And we did some pretty cool projects, some with Department of Defense here and some with some law enforcement agencies, but found that uh, at a similar time, one of the top four consulting firms released their definition of risk intelligence, which all had to do with big data. And it was quite confusing. So we then went, right, what's next? If risk is fine and, and people get risk, what's next? So... I love the saying risks get realized because once they realize they're not a risk anymore, they've actually happened. Mm. And when a risk happens, you need resilience and, and linking it back to close protection. You know, my version of tough has constantly evolved through my career. So in the beginning, when I was a martial artist, you know, tough was how many fights can you have in a row? You know, how, how many punches can you take? How many can you dish out? Then I kind of got into close protection and I saw these guys who could work, you know, 48 to 72 hours, very little sleep and still perform professionally. I was like, now that is tough. <laughs> then we started working with special forces. And then you've got guys who are going five days, no food, almost no sleep and still functioning beautifully and performing these incredibly arduous physical tasks. And then somewhere along my career, the first time I actually had to fire somebody who I really cared about, you kind of have a different level of tough. So, so I think when we start looking at resilience, it, it is important because risk gets realized, but we really found that the problem with resilience is it's a pretty hard concept for people to own and almost impossible for organizations to get their heads around. So as an example, through COVID, I landed up doing several keynotes for the Global Business Continuity Institute. And my brief there was more or less along the lines of, you know, Business Continuity Institute, we, we, we are the experts in resilience. We, we do business continuity planning. We do business interruption in planning. We, we set up organizations so that they can weather disruption. But even their members were confused around, so does HR own human resilience? Does cyber own cyber resilience? Or, you know, does, does my security person own resilience? Like, where does it fit? We also found two big problems with the modeling around resilience. So if any of you don't believe me, just Google definition resilience and almost guaranteed something will pop up that will say it's toughness or it's the ability to persevere. And the challenge we've got is we are trying to reform resilience into something it's not. Resilience is literally bad stuff happens. Can I get through it and keep going? There are two components that tend to be missing. The first one which close protection and executive protection experts live by is proactive prevention. Why would we like to prove that our actions on any immediate action rules are so good that you know our VIP survives no matter what? You know, no, 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 no professional would ever want to take that risk. We'd much rather put the effort into prevention. So, so realistically, 
you know, that piece we found missing. And, you know, going back to, for example, this up to starter breach that happened in Australia, they had their compliance. So they met, they're a compliant organization. They meet all the minimum standards. They have all their reporting in place. They have their resilience because uh, I'm actually an Optus client and my service was not disrupted. Where they failed was presilience, the proactive prevention. Mm. The, the other piece that presilience tackled was this idea that uh, often we are faced with disruptions and challenges. And I go back to my close protection days and I still remember a, a job I was doing with a very, very experienced ex-presidential protection unit operator. And we spent three days putting the plan together we had this file on the back seat that was you know, two inches thick that had every route, every evacuation plan, every contact point, every safe haven identified. And then the job starts and you never look at the file and the whole thing changes and all your planning doesn't actually come to fruition. But it was an incredibly valuable lesson because the fact that you go through the planning means you are adaptable and able to change on the fly with uh, program subconscious of what works and what doesn't and happy to expand on that at a, probably a later point we won't we probably won't be able to do it on this interview but learning how to do those uh activities that program subconscious and intuitive decision making makes somebody an excellent operator and so there's never a, a loss in planning but the trick that i always saw with great close protection and executive protection operators was their ability to change things on the go quickly pivot and actually do it seamlessly where their client feels like they're getting the best service in the world and this was always going to happen so in essence we turn risk to opportunity we go you've changed your you've changed your structure but now there's an opportunity to do it better so relating that back to resilience and corporate modeling you know what we found is that very few organizations learn through disruption and most of those who are married to resilience when something bad happens, all they're trying to do is get back to what they were doing before the disruption. Whereas there's a significant opportunity to go, hey, what have we learned? And do we want to do things differently? So what we found in this journey to resilience is it's actually three things. It's compliance. You have to do some stuff. Compliance is your ticket to the game. And if you think about that from a close protection operation perspective, if we are not cleaning our weapons, checking our weapons, checking our comms, uh, making sure our vehicles are roadworthy, all those things that are not sexy, but would, would deem to be a fundamental tick-the-box activity to start it off, you're vulnerable. Then we want to get that resilience piece, right? We want people who can work when they get disrupted, when things change over, when they're dealing with difficult clients, difficult people, and they need to have a level of toughness. But ultimately, the best operators are the ones who do the compliance part, are very tough and resilient, but can embrace that proactive prevention and opportunity centrism as they operate. And, and that does translate directly to corporates and large organizations too. And, and then do you think that the operator can therefore see themselves as the security manager of tomorrow if they take that approach? Because, you know, there are lots of transferable skills. Sometimes they find it difficult to get buy-in for, you know, previous SF experience in a corporate environment, for example. Um, but, but but do you think this is then the key to them progressing in that direction? Well, it certainly is one of the critical variables because I, I would say, and I often get this, I, I, I love to give back. So I'm constantly getting people who reach out to me, Gav, I'm at a crossroads in my career or I'm just starting my career or, you know, what do I do next or how do I get into this field or that? 
there's there's two things I think that are really, really important. One is this idea of a growth mindset. We are continually learning and should continually be learning. The second people go, um, the best at that, nobody can do it better. You know, in all likelihood, their career prospects are pigeonholed and their ability to be adapt adaptive and transition is slim to none. Having employed many, many ex-special forces operators in my businesses over the years, while they are highly adaptable, sometimes that perception of I know it all and nobody knows more than me is, is actually a, a stumbling block for them when they get when they try to get into the corporate world. Because it, you know, you know that old saying, same, same, but different. A lot of the skills are transferable, but a lot of them aren't. And for you know, as one simple example, often tactical operators, the ability to make quick, blunt, effective decisions and enact on those decisions is a crucial life or death piece. In a corporate environment, it's often less about that and it's more about uh, influencing very subtly, building networks, leveraging those networks, and trying to find win-wins that make lots of people look good, as opposed to a quick direct action. So, so to answer your question, I think resilience is a really, really important piece, but growth mindset is equally as important. And you know, the, the truth of it is, the, the world keeps changing around us. And I'm I'm looking at my own career, and I think we started this discussion. Uh, I've just gone back. I've just finished another year back at university, studying again. And you sort of look at that, and lots of people went, "Gav, why are you doing that? You run a successful business. You lecture at university. You know, you've got all this stuff going. You've won all these awards." I'm going, "Yeah, but there's gaps in my knowledge because things are constantly changing. So it's a constant cycle. And and I think that's one of those pieces. Good executive protectors. One of the one of the other skills they develop, which is incredibly valuable, is great situational awareness." They have that ability to absorb what's happening around them and make sense of it. But it's a skill that we very rarely practice making transferable. And when you can get that transferable, you become an incredible asset to any organization that would want to employ you. Yeah, absolutely. And 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 there's a great drive for further education. Um, I, I don't think I've seen many other uh, communities where so many mass online courses are on their CV, so many extracurricular things. Um, and, and yeah, maybe there's an element of how do you tailor it to your audience so you don't put everything there. But the fact that they have that to put there, I think, is 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 a great testament. However, there's another part to security management in Australia, and that's Australia. Um, I'd be interested in your thoughts about maybe unique aspects of the corporate security landscape, um, CPEP in, in Australia, things that you think the, the, the wider world should sort of know about. Sure. Um, so I think a first starting point is we also run something called the Australian Security Research Centre. As you know, um, during COVID, the Security Association here utilised the ASRC to do Australia's largest study into the private security industry. So we have some quite current data on, on what this industry looks like, where it's going and what it needs. So I think there's there's a few variables that that are important. One Australia has traditionally been very lucky. We're an isolated island far away. We're a small population and we're a wealthy country because of the mineral wealth. The whole game has changed now and it started to change when uh, virtual radicalization and the uh, shift in violent extremism 
changing from these complex 9-11 style attacks to, hey, just pick up a knife and stab someone. Because that transcended the fact that we were an island. And, you know, all we have to do is look at the Christchurch mosque attack in New Zealand to, to realize how damaging these could be. The second piece is the cyber component. You know, cyber attacks don't really have any geographic limitations. As long as the internet's there, they can happen. So, you know, if we just take those two, and there's many more variables, but if we just take those two, it's changed the face of corporate and security in general in Australia. There's many other geopolitical pieces that move around that. Um, so I think Australia has done some incredible things in terms of security frameworks, uh, reporting structures. Uh, it's free. So if you want to go check out the federal government's protective security policy framework, it's excellent. Uh, it's a principles-based, risk-based, very simple framework that has 16 compliance requirements under four pillars that literally enable complex organizations to manage security risk. Uh, so things like that, you know, I look at, I go, I go back to South Africa and we, we never bothered with things like that. It was always too hands-on and practical to really implement an holistic framework that would actually create, I know you and I have had these discussions around enterprise security and enterprise risk modeling, but a lot of that stuff does work when you've got a good framework to do it to. I think the other challenge for Australia is that traditionally our agencies were the primary stakeholders in securing both corporate and national security. This has been changing steadily. I've been here 15 years and I've seen it change continuously and it's still changing now. There's, there's a realization that probably happened maybe eight to 10 years ago among law enforcement agencies that they can't do it alone and they need to work more closely with the private sector. I still look at that and I go, honestly, even countries like India, we're in that private public partnership modeling we are probably 20 years behind many other countries. We, we haven't really accepted that piece yeah. and, yet. And it, 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 it'll become, you know, increasingly uh, important. And we saw, we saw over the last uh, two years, uh, people, uh, wealthy, wealthy people uh, have uh, properties in Australia, New Zealand, and, uh, you know, they like it. They like, they like the geography. So, so there's definitely going to be more EP work um, and, uh, and, and, and so on. Well, let's focus on the EP sector itself. And, you know, my first thought when I arrived here was, great, I'll take my international executive protection business, which at that point we were doing really well. We had 140 operators working for us in probably between 10 and 15 countries at any given time. We had corporate gigs with three out of four of the big banks, which some of those, the one involved uh, a 20-man static protection team and a 20-man executive protection team. So in my head, I was going, right, I'll come to Australia with all this high-risk knowledge and we'll be able to transfer it and found the market was not ready for it, nor was it a large-scale viable risk. So there's several anomalies in Australia that it's useful for an international audience to get their head around. The first one is, even though we only have a population of about 24, 25 million, each state requires its own licensing. So it's exceptionally hard for people who want to travel around Australia to get one executive protection provider or team to look after them. In fact, it's unlawful unless they have licenses in every state, which is a, a very challenging piece to get right. Uh, the next thing that absolutely blows my mind is that executive protectors can't work armed. So in almost every state, you're, you, you can have 
firearms to protect assets. You cannot use firearms to protect people. Oh. Okay, so so if you don't believe me and you're listening to this, have a Google, check it out. It's a crazy anomaly. And at some point along the line, it will probably get rectified. But that comes from historical legacy of a very low risk from uh, direct physical attack on people historically, and the only threat being that of robbery being the big the big issue we had to protect from. So it's 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 an out of date concept that's at least twenty years out of date, but you can see how it evolved, and it's still it's still current. So you know even things like batons and handcuffs are restricted items in almost every state, and you have to have a separate set of training and in some places licenses to be able to simply carry a baton or handcuffs. So so very different uh, for those like me who who were used to operating in Africa, where you know it's which gun do I take today and you know my go bag is there and every every little bit of kit you want you can get your hands on. It's quite different. And, um, there, and there a lot is of an executive would have come yeah. to South Africa for their training. Well, and that was one of the you know the, one of the benefits of South Africa from a training perspective. It, it's high risk, volatile, but you could. You know, we could get assault weapons. We could use everything to train. So I go back. I sold out of my business there in 2014. But as a, an executive protection training business there, we actually had to purchase two sets of guns. We had one set for our operators, but it was illegal to use a firearm for different purposes. So we had to have one set for training and one set for operators, which actually meant we we, we built up quite a decent arsenal. Um so, so to your point, like places like South Africa were, were excellent destinations for executive protection training and close protection training, particularly because even on live scenarios, there's a risk factor. You know, the violent crime is so high that if you were running a scenario and you weren't actually aware, something bad really could happen. And in many of our scenarios, you know, we, we, we had armed robberies happen, for example, in the shopping centers we were doing activities in. So it it, 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 it's a dynamic place. And those who've had the opportunity to train there, uh, you know, South Africa now is not what it was. It, it's tougher and it's harder and it's different, but it's an excellent, robust training training environment. And, oper- if, and, and if you're an operator there, you, you definitely are dealing with risk every day and your mindset has to be quite different. And, and, and so, you know, more, more operators, we could envisage, you know, it's, we're not futurologists, but we could envisage them having to travel to Australia. Um, what should they do in advance? Uh, in the, I mean, are they going to be able to have a degree of reciprocity with their licenses? Do they need a local partner? Do they, do they have any prospect of working temporarily? Uh, what's, what's that like for them? So legally, when you look at the legislative requirements, there is no legal way for somebody who does not have a security license to perform security functions in Australia. So it it really is important to understand that that if you're coming in, you you might be the detail leader, you you might be the advanced team, you cannot actually provide the service without a local partner. What's, What's important to understand also is that the market is exceptionally small in terms of good operators. And you know, while that's not unique, if you you know, the, the, you know, some might argue, even the UK, for example, that you know, there's not hundreds of great operators. There's tier one, tier two, tier three operators. The market is very small in Australia, uh, in terms of that. And and I would say one of the other things that's really interesting that even operators who come out of the military units or the police units that do dignitary protection, um, 
they are used to working with a level of resourcing and authority that enables them to perform better. And, and many of them don't transition that well to the private sector where there's no help, no backup. Some do, but many don't. Um, so, you know, I, I, one of the things to get your head around if you're an international operator coming here, particularly if you're bringing your principal here, is, you know, threat levels are comparatively lower in Australia. There's no doubt about it. But it doesn't mean there isn't threat. And it doesn't mean that international criminal syndicates and terrorist organizations don't have footprints here and aren't planning to do really bad things. But I, I would strongly suggest, I mean, obviously, my own firm has a relatively robust security capability that we support many international companies with executive protection work. But you do need to find organizations that are licensed in the states. For example, we are licensed in four states. So if somebody wanted to work across the country in the states we weren't licensed in, we'd have to be partnering with another company to be able to legally put that together. So it's not as simple as it might be in other places. And uh, you shouldn't be fooled into the fact that it's perceived to be a safe destination into thinking that there is no risk. But conversely, uh, I would say it certainly is lower risk than many other destinations that people could go to. And and possibly the risk uh, is 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 uh, different than uh, one would imagine. Like even even London these last couple of years revealed uh, inag inadequacies in in uh, services that you might have thought were available. Um, uh, okay, that was maybe a sign of what was going on, <laughs> but 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 I think it, it it's uh, it's revealed no uh, absolutely safe uh, safe spot. Um, so, so, so perhaps that's where uh, security management and resilience comes in, because uh, yes, you may never be able to properly enact any CP skills that you've been training for, but getting to a hospital, uh, planning, planning for that. Imagine, imagine another wave of uh, unavailability of transport and 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 hospitals. That's that's perhaps where where we can learn from, isn't it? Um, so even though you're in a different part of the world to me, I'm giving you a virtual half hour now because <laughs> the, this idea of integrated risk is incredibly important. And, you know, often we, we fixate on what is perceived to be the sexy, obvious risks, you know, physical attack, harassment, protests, paparazzi, etc. And we, we plan for those. Realistically, to your point, what we're seeing now are more logistical disruptions health disruptions. We're seeing things, for example, like wrong place, wrong time, inconvenience pieces, which, you know, having run an executive protection business for quite a while, more people get fired because the client feels irritated and inconvenienced than because of their security skills not being up to speed. So, you know, I think I think it's important that your idea, your, your concept you raised there of integrated risk management you, you need to actually go, okay, what are the things that will keep my client happy? What are the things that will enable them to have a smooth and efficient trip? And in many cases, those, those are harder. Uh, Post-COVID in the Australian environment, uh, security officers are in very short supply. Executive, I'm busy trying to stand up a gig now for eight operators that I've got to get up somewhere tomorrow. And finding my normal, normally I wouldn't struggle with our networks. But filling short notice with tier one operators is tough. Mm. So if if you are coming, you need to plan ahead if you want proper protection and proper support, because there is a significant labor shortage due to the licensing challenges and the training problems and the lack of uh, the lack of influx of foreign workers through COVID. 
Um, equally so, there's a lack of resources from a vehicle perspective. So, you know, it's not as simple as it might have been pre-COVID. And, you know, the def definitely when we look at things going wrong in Australia, natural disasters are frequent, floods, fires and the like. So having this view of integrated risk is really important. And it's probably worth um, at least those who have not considered it, understanding the, the states, right? When we, when we say the states, they go, what, Australia has different states? Of course it does, right? And, and, and those differences, political differences and political priorities uh, really came to the fore um, these last couple of years where uh, people would be allowed something in one of them and not allowed in another one. And, and maybe it's just important to see how federalized it is. 100%. And, you know, I guess I look from my perspective, uh, working across South Africa or Africa or even in Asia. Uh, I hadn't had that. I've done business in the US, but I didn't really operate much. I've delivered training there. But the vast differences in expectations across states is significant. And I think you know, almost everyone I've spoken to never expected our states to pull apart the way they did through COVID and to stop each other from, from actually functioning. So it, 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 it's, it's a very valid point you raise and you almost have to treat Australia as though it is realistically six or seven different countries in one. Yeah, which is, which is good. And, and, but it makes time zones interesting, doesn't it? Because I know we uh, are, are very, uh, you know, much looking forward to working with you on an, an event uh, this week. And uh, I know the Brisbane time zone, the Melbourne time zone, it's, uh, it doesn't matter where you are geog geographically. It's just, so it's, it's all a bit different, um, but but yeah, maybe that's a good segue. So what have what have what have you got coming up? Um, I know I know this week we're working on an event together, and uh, this podcast will go out just before it. Um, but but beyond that, what's uh, what's what's coming up? Sure. So aside from all the activities that our business does, which you know we're we're an integrated risk business doing security, safety, medical, health, risk, and cyber. So there's always a ton of stuff going on there. Next week we have the Protective Security and Government Conference which we're very happy to be partnering with the Federal Attorney General's Department to present. There are uh, virtual passes for those who are in different countries and want to check out what's going on. And there's some really, really awesome stuff and a great lineup of speakers on that event. So if you are able to tune in on that, and it, it's not just for people who work for government. If in any of your supply chain or your business aspirations, you want to be working with government departments. And in Australia, we've got three layers, federal, state and local you know, lots and lots and lots of people work for in or around government so it's an important piece to consider um, we're also very happy to be partnering with our federal home affairs department who have recently expanded the security of critical infrastructure legislation and expanded the uh, difference the different uh, asset owners and sectors that are covered under that ci infrastructure legislation and we've got a series of webinars with them. First one actually comes out on Friday and they're all free. So it is worth checking that out. In fact, on Friday, uh, the um, head of the federal government's critical infrastructure security division is going to be speaking about his view on the legislation and what it means. So, you know, if you work in corporate or executive security and you have or you think your organization has any interest in Australia, it's well worth getting in touch on those. 
uh, and that'll lead the, all the, those webinars lead up to the critical infrastructure security conference that we're putting on for home affairs next March. Um, in, in between that, yeah, ton of webinars and interviews and podcasts and lots of other fun stuff going on. So yeah, please, uh, I, I guess from my side, uh, I love doing these sort of podcast interviews. And if you are listening to this one, please do reach out to Philem and the team if any of the stuff we've discussed is of interest and request what you'd like us to talk about. Because I think part of the challenge is in one sitting, we really don't get into many topics in detail. We skirt past a bunch. And uh, I, I do feel a, a significant drive to want to help executive protection practitioners transition when the time is right. Absolutely. Well, let's let's help them with that let's help them on their journey towards security management and uh, it's been it's been a pleasure talking to you today um uh, dr gav thank you very much um this has been another fantastic edition of the circuit magazine podcast what a pleasure finally getting dr gav snyder on the podcast I really enjoy having him on. And of course, so many things coming up, uh, not uh, least uh, my event with him and his own PSG event uh, coming up very soon. But John, what did you take away from today's session? Yeah, it's fantastic to have somebody like Dr. Garb on the podcast. I'm surprised it took so long. You know, such a he's such a prominent figure in the industry, uh, so generous with his time and, you know, willing to share like he has done today. And, you know, in, in many ways, you know, I think it's um, he, he's a great poster boy for the uh, non-military and non-police, you know, background um, listeners that we have in the audience. If anybody wants to be inspired, then they can certainly look at uh, Dr. Gab's story, right, and see that, you know, regardless of where you start, if you've got the commitment and you, you know, as Dr. Gab is, you know, commit to being a lifelong learner, always developing, always trying to improve yourself, but but also doing it smart, you know, looking for what is the next big thing, what, you know, where is there going to be a need and a demand and where can I add value? And, and I think, you know, that's definitely a real smart lesson to take away from that. Absolutely. And even even his most recent, uh, you know, accolade that he that he put out on social media about his uh, cyber security qualification. Well, uh, as as many other uh, physical or corporate security based consultancies, uh, he has developed an offering for that sector. Now, it doesn't mean that he's going to transform into a hacker or some sort of full stack developer. That's that's not it. Uh, but he does uh, lead the way as as others might want to follow in understanding what the customer might need, and so and so I really I really uh, appreciate that. I also appreciated uh, the expose about Australia because for me it was a little bit um, eye opening that of course Australia is a federation of states, much like the United States, um, and 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 whilst each geography is different. It, it, it's really key, especially if you've got an operation or a job down there to, to think, right, um, it's not just one big uh, open uh, country. It, it is it is specific from from place to place. Um, what, 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 what else do you think we can we can take away? Yeah, well, I mean, you know, 
inside of the whole uh, environmental geographical side of things, it's also interesting to see how, uh, and, and I think this is also something that Joe Saunders touched upon as well when we had him on the podcast, that the demand and need for protectors is relatively low, uh, you know, for, for various reasons in Australia. And therefore, if you're trying to build a career for yourself, it, it might be that you're led into a security management pathway a lot faster. And, and you know, that's really interesting because whereas in, in the US and the UK, where there is a lot of opportunities, there's a lot of work for protectors, do we hang around in this area, in our comfort zone for longer, perhaps than we should? I mean, I, I, I don't know. I, I don't certainly, you know, not, I'm, I mean, I'm a, been a lifelong protector so far. So, you know, I don't want to risk offending anyone. It might be that, you know, this is what we do. This is what we enjoy. You know, this is what we, we never want to do anything else. But I'm, I'm sure at the same time, there's a lot of people who maybe want to progress or try their hand at a different area, different sector in management or whatever. Uh, and certainly in the uh, in Australia, it sounds like those opportunities perhaps come to you a lot sooner, something that you would have to consider a lot sooner in your career. That's that is an interesting reflection. I, I hadn't I hadn't considered that. Um I think I think yeah, we might have to explore that on on, on a future episode. Um, I I wonder, I wonder I wonder if people do stay too long, quote unquote. Um, you know, in in a in a given area, that that is an interesting one. Yeah, uh, this might be one that gets fan mail. <laughs> yeah, yes, well, that's right. We get fan mail. It's fine. It's uh, it's 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 all good. And and of course, if you are enjoying uh these podcasts please do let us know um quite often we do meet people who say yes i've been listening for a couple of years loved it I'm like well all right it's the first time i've heard from you so we do like to get uh, positive fan mail as well uh, uh, it's amazing isn't it i mean it's one of the reasons why i enjoy going to the events just this this last event that we held our little uh get together at the keeper book green on the back of the ise you know unearthed more listeners and and they it you know it's funny I was having a conversation with somebody I had like you know not in not in good networking fashion I've been talking to them for about thirty minutes before they happened to mention that uh, they'd listened to almost every single podcast from start to finish and they were late coming into the game and they actually no I I couldn't believe it I was blown away they 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 attributed the podcast as to one of the main reasons why they were doing what they were doing and this is somebody who came from a a police background, uh, yet it still was. It still um, took listening to our podcasts to really sow the seed and to help uh, hone in on the area that they wanted to work in. So I thought that was really cool. So yeah, you know, I know we're protectors. We're in the security industry, but we, you know, if if you've got uh, something to say about the podcast, be it good, bad, indifferent. You know, don't stay in the shadows. Come forward. Let us know. Either, you know, if it's good, great. We want to hear it. We love the pat on the back as well. And if it's something that you want to see uh, us bringing into the show that we're not already doing, then let us know that. Because, you know, we, we, we're creating this, you know, for, for the listeners, for yourselves. So if there's something that we can do to make the show better or add another dimension to it, then let us know. And that, and that is truly heartening. Yeah, that... Uh... 
that is inspirational uh, to to hear from a listener like you like you have. Um, so uh, so yes, what 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 else have we got coming up? I know uh, Elijah has just wrapped up his course, and uh, you know there's 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 a, there's a host of things going on uh, towards the end of the year. What uh, what 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 do you what do you want to tell people about? Yeah, I think Elijah literally finished his course and had a dash. And from what I can gather, it was extremely successful uh, and, and a huge effort went into it. I know that, but I won't talk about it. I know Elijah will be back on the show soon and I'm sure he'll want to uh, reflect on that himself. And I'm looking forward, you know, personally to hear it from uh, from him direct. But certainly from what I see when I dip into uh, the NABA Protector app, it, it certainly looked like a fantastic course. There were some great quotes being posted on there, some really good, uh, you know, you know, some learning uh, memes were coming out of it. It was, it was really good. You know, on our side, we're uh, preparing the next magazine. We've got some great contributions already lined up for it. Um, and, and it's it's not a magazine an issue by issue thing you know if you want to contribute send it in anytime you know it there's all you know we're always uh looking for contributions you know from any area of the industry if you don't think you've got something to say um then you probably shouldn't be working in security we've all you know got our thoughts you know we put in opinion pieces we put in knowledge how to experience uh you know the, the whole gamut so if you've got something to say you know, and you don't think it's being said, then, you know, get in touch. Please do. And uh, we, 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 we'd love to incorporate it. Um, I, I'm, I'm looking forward to a variety of things coming up, uh, including, of course, the EP forum, uh, where uh, Elijah Shaw is going to be speaking amongst some other great people. And that is just before the IPSB. That's going to be amazing. Um, and of course, um, the uh, 8th annual uh, EPCP Tech Forum, twenty sixth of January in London. Uh, I know it's never too it's never too soon to tell people about it. Uh, we do we do uh, often need to give people more notice. No, especially for an event like this that I'm more and more uh, often seeing referred to as one of the must attend events of the year. I mean, this is really being established on the calendar. You know, for me personally. It, it's it's the top one or two events that I don't want to miss. So if I can juggle anything around, I mean, you know, as protectors, we have our schedules. Sometimes we have a little bit of flexibility. Even when we do, we don't want to move things around too often and be that, that guy or that girl, right? But this is one time when I will try to change things to ensure that I'm there. So yeah, I think, you know, giving people good warning in advance about that is is really worth it. Well, thanks very much. And and you never know, maybe we will have some Antipodean friends coming over. Uh, you never know, they're traveling again. Uh, so it, it was a great pleasure to speak with Dr. Gav Snyder. I am looking forward to uh, this week and next week, a bunch of things we're, 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 we're doing uh, together. And uh, and I would implore you to reach out uh, to him. And, uh, and yes, security management, what a great career path. Um, I would love for everyone to sort of consider it and 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 connect the presilience dots. I don't know if I'm using the presilience term out of hand there, but why not? So from John and myself, this has been another fantastic edition of the Circuit Magazine podcast. You have been listening to the Circuit Magazine podcast. 
Be sure to subscribe and be sure to not miss an episode.